This podcast was recorded on Wednesday, June 7th at 4.45 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I think that there was probably hope on the part of many of our European partners that when he actually came to Europe and sat down in the NATO Council, sat down at the G7, that they would be getting uh, the more reasonable version of Donald Trump. That didn't happen. And what, what actually happened was, I think, a shock. And I think that something snapped. That's Roland Paris, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's former foreign policy advisor. Paris is referring to the reaction of Canada's European allies to U.S. President Donald Trump's recent visit to Europe. Trump refused to state that he supports Article 5 of the NATO Pact, a mutual defense pledge. And that led German Chancellor Angela Merkel to say Europeans now need to look after their own security. The times when we could completely count on others, they are over to a certain extent. When Trump announced the United States was pulling out of the Paris Agreement on Climate, French President Emmanuel Macron said the world would plow ahead without him. I do think it is an actual mistake, both for the US and for our planet. Because wherever we live, whoever we are, we all share the same responsibility. Make our planet great again. This week, some analysts suggest the message from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's government is also, Canada is moving on without you, Mr. Trump. In a speech to the House of Commons, Foreign Affairs Minister Christia Freeland noted that international relationships that seemed immutable for the past 70 years now appear to be shifting. The fact that our friend and ally has come to question the very worth of its mantle of global leadership puts into sharper focus the need for the rest of us to set our own clear and sovereign course. Today on the show, we're jumping into the Liberal government's new foreign policy agenda in the face of Trump and the billions of dollars in military spending the Grits are pledging to back it up. We'll talk to Roland Paris, foreign affairs and defense spending experts Kim Nossel and Stephanie Carvin, and of course, we'll chat about the politics of it all with strategists Carl Belanger, Greg McEachran, and Rachel Curran. And we'll also throw in some fun stuff too. <laughs> I'm Althea Raj, and this is Follow Up, a HuffPost Canada politics podcast. Hello, my name is Roland Paris. I'm a professor of international affairs at the University of Ottawa, and I used to be Justin Trudeau's foreign policy advisor. Thank you for inviting us into your home. Oh, you're welcome. What did you make of um, Foreign Affairs Minister Christia Freeland's speech in the House of Commons on Tuesday? I thought it was um, exceptionally good speech. Uh, I think it was a uh, the clearest articulation yet of the way that the Trudeau government has been managing in the era of Trump. And by that I mean um, that the Trudeau government has been continuing to reach out positively to the U.S. administration, 
has sought to maintain a good constructive relationship with Donald Trump himself. But at the same time, um, the Canadian government has not been uh, trimming its sails when it comes to uh, key policy areas where there's a divergence between Canada and the United States, including on climate change. And I think that there was a recognition in the speech that uh, Canada has uh, enduring, uh, enduring interest in sustaining these international structures of cooperation, whether they're alliances, whether they're major agreements, whether they're institutions. She explained why that's the case. She explained why it's important for Canada to be spending money on these things, including on defense. You could easily imagine a Canadian view that says, we are safe on our continent and we have things to do at home. So let's turn inward. Let's say Canada first. Here's why that would be wrong. D'abord, men's U.S. military power. Why invest billions to maintain a capable, professional, well-funded, and well-equipped Canadian military? The answer is obvious. To rely solely on the U.S. security umbrella would make us a client state. And although we have an incredibly good relationship with our American friends and neighbors, such a dependence would not be in Canada's interest. This is a definitive rejection of a small Canada vision of Canadian foreign policy. And it is, it is an explanation of why it is so important for us to be continuing to work with others, to build those cooperative structures internationally, to reinforce the institutions and alliances that we have, and to adapt them to the rise of new powers as well. It's a positive vision which is not currently shared by the U.S. administration, but which is very consistent with a traditional American vision of, of international affairs. A lot of people, I think, are reflecting on the speech in light of Donald Trump. And perhaps it was because the government was not saying much since Mr. Trump has been elected. But it seemed like that here was an actual verbal repudiation about the Trump policies, whether that's specifically mentioning Article 5 uh, from NATO or specifically mentioning uh, climate change. Was that, I mean, that, that didn't seem very diplomatic. Um, well, I think that, I think that they've been walking a tightrope uh, for, for a while, ever since uh, Trump was elected, and it is a balancing act. And uh, the way that the prime minister struck that balance when he went and visited uh, the president in early February was, uh, if you'll remember, after their meeting, they had a, uh, a media availability. And both of these leaders were asked to comment on their differences. And neither did. But what the prime minister did was interesting. He said, I'm not here to lecture uh, President Trump. Um, but Canadians expect me to govern according to Canadian values and to promote Canadian interests, and, and that's what I intend to do. And in that context, he also talked about the importance of an open society that's open, that's tolerant, and that welcomes people who are fleeing war and refugees. And so what you had in that little moment was a kind of crystallization, I think, of the approach that the Trudeau government has taken, which is to be very clear about what its priorities are, including in areas where they're not at all on the same page as Trump, but not to attack Trump directly. 
And Canadians, I think, got this. And, um, and I think it's a very effective way of proceeding. And I think this speech is very much in that spirit. It is, there is gratitude ex expressed to the United States by Christian Freeland for the costs that the United States has borne for maintaining this international system. And, but there's also a bit of a lament about the fact that some people who voted for Trump thought that it was no longer in America's interest to be a leader in this way. It is only fair for us to acknowledge the larger contribution of the United States for in blood, in treasure, in strategic vision, in leadership, America has paid the lion's share. The United States has truly been the indispensable nation, Mr. Speaker, for their unique seven decades long contribution to our shared peace and prosperity. And on behalf of all Canadians, I would like to profoundly thank our American friends. Would we have seen a speech like this if it Donald Trump had not been elected? No way. No way. I mean, it, you know, I think that what we have here is a situa pretty remarkable situation where we have um, the U.S. president uh, for the first time since uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt or prior mm -hmm. to him, for the first time since, uh, you know, Hoover, the Great Depression, who is renouncing the American role of helping to underpin the international order that the United States built. And it built that order not out of altruism. It built that order because it was in America's interest to have a stable, relatively peaceful international environment, one of, of openness to trade. And so we're in a very unusual situation. Um, you know, are we making long-term decisions to respond to perhaps a short-term problem we have down south? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I don't think so. Um, I think that, you know, the defense policy review began before the U.S. election, mm -hmm. and there, the government had, all, had been saying that there were problems in terms of reinvesting in, in defense for a long time. And, uh, I, you know, of course, the emphasis that Donald Trump has placed on defense spending, I'm sure, has come into calculations uh, for the government about um, how to proceed on its defense policy. But uh, if I think about other areas of policy, like you could say, for example, um, imagine a country in Canada's position and you could say, well, we have such enormous economic interests, then maybe what you want to do is be pulling back on some of the areas where there's a divergence between Canada and the United States. And so what might those areas be? Uh, climate change, say, for example, or our approach to refugees, our willingness to accept refugees, including Syrian refugees. Uh, or even you might say our approach to Russia, where ironically now Canada has a tougher uh, stand on Russia uh, than, than the Trump administration. So if the thesis that Canada is going to be trimming its sails uh, and changing its policies in key areas because of Trump were to hold, then it should be visible in those areas. I haven't seen any evidence or indication of a change in Canada's position on climate change, on refugees, or on Russia. And I think that that's uh, a testament to the sophistication of the policy right now, is that the Tr Trudeau government is, is able to communicate its differences in a way that is not provoking the thin-skinned man in the White House. 
Roland Paris, thank you very much. Thank you. Roland Paris is the University Research Chair in International Security and Governance at the University of Ottawa. Up until last year, he was Prime Minister Trudeau's Senior Foreign Policy Advisor. On Wednesday, Defence Minister Harjit Sajjan released the government's long-awaited defence policy review. Today, we set a new course. Reversing a pattern of decline, this new policy will see annual cash funding for defence increase by more than 70% in 10 years. It will grow from $18.9 billion in 2016-17 to $32.7 billion in 2026-27. Unsurprisingly, the opposition remained unimpressed. Now, Canadians have been waiting a long time for Minister Sajjan to unveil the Liberals' defence policy. And while it contains a lot of big promises, we are deeply concerned that the government will not be able to deliver, given the Liberals' dismal record on national defence this far. Sajjan cannot give a timeline for the major capital projects announced, including the 15 ships and the 88 new fighter aircrafts the government plans to buy. Most of the projected military spending comes after not a second mandate, but after a third one. So how can the Liberals really say that their commitments will be kept? And where is this money coming from? Sajjan was asked about that repeatedly during his press conference. Minister, where is the 60-plus billion dollars of additional funding coming from? Is your government planning on increasing the size of the deficit or cutting spending from other areas? Today is about making sure that we focus on investing in our number one capability and showing our government's commitment to the Canadian Armed Forces. So to be clear, am I to interpret from that that you haven't determined where that money will come from? Our government has fully committed to making sure that the Canadian Armed Forces are going to be on a sustainable footing for the next 20 years. I'm just wondering, though, why you will not say where this money is going to be coming from, whether it's going to result in a larger deficit or whether it's going to come from other programming. It's also important to note when, regarding the funding that uh, when, uh, when we went through the costing process, the other departments involved, in this, uh, and especially uh, uh, the Minister of Finance, um, gone through a very uh, a thorough process to making sure that our government will be able to commit to this. But more importantly, we as a government are make, putting it black and white in the uh, defence uh, policy of where those future numbers are going to be, so that future governments and, uh, can be held to account by the Canadian public. That was the Defence Minister answering questions about where the $62 billion in defence spending will come from. The fact that we're having rising powers, we're seeing a change in the balance of power, and Canada has to live in this world. That where it has previously relied upon American uh, willingness to provide a kind of world order, that's no longer there. So how is Canada going to exist? Because we need international institutions. We need the rule of law. We don't thrive well without these things. And I, this, is, this is the Liberal government's answer. My name is Stephanie Carvin. I'm an assistant professor of international affairs at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. And I'm Kim Nossel. I'm a uh, professor at the uh, Center for International Defense Policy at Queen's University. I think the biggest takeaway was there was a sense of cautious optimism in the room when they, 
report was released. They gave us the report. They gave us about 45 minutes to read it, process it. And then, you know, they brought in experts to kind of explain it and we could ask questions. And I'm not sure better than expected was the line that maybe the Liberal government wanted, but that's that's what it was. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. And there were some people there who actually said, you know, I can't believe this is a Liberal government document. Maybe the gender-based analysis part would not would kind of betrayed uh, where it came from. But if you look at the actual spending, spending commitments, and an actually very hard-nosed, clear-eyed view of the current security situation that's in the threat environment in the back, it's not necessarily a liberal, you know, a view they would necessarily associate perhaps with the Liberal Party. So that was the first takeaway. The second takeaway, I think, is that, you know, there is actually a robust spending commitment here over 20 years. They're not going to reach the 2%, but we have to look at the context in which that's taking place. They're gradually building a process and a capacity to eventually get to a place where Department of Defense can actually spend more money. And finally, I think the thing that I noticed is that, you know, there's a lot of good plans in here, but it was noticed in the room that there's no timelines for actually putting these policies in place, that there's no actual way that you can evaluate, are the liberals actually meeting their target? Is Department of Defense meeting its target? And really the test of this isn't going to be the document itself. The test is going to be, can the liberal government actually implement it? Can it go forward with it? So those would be my three big takeaways. And and I think that, that those are, are excellent observations. My reaction is exactly like Stephanie's in in the uh, sense that the Liberal Party and indeed the Liberals, many of the Liberals in the present House of Commons, just simply aren't known for their commitment to uh, hard power. But when Christia Freeland gave her foreign policy statement in the the House of Commons, it was quite clear that uh, this government at this particular moment is in fact taking what for liberals uh, is a fairly radical step, and that is uh, embracing the idea of the importance of hard power uh, in Canada's foreign and defense policy. And I think that, that uh, in that sense, this is, a, this is a major step away from tradition. But like Stephanie, I also think that uh, that there is a serious, serious problem uh, with regard to, to timelines. Uh, all of the promises are way into the future uh, and uh, well beyond the next election. Uh, you know, a relatively small sum of money has been devoted uh, to uh, spending increases in the next year or so. But much of the promise is in, you know, by the uh, early, mid-2020s. You know, that issue did come up in the room during the lockup, and someone asked, well, what are you spending on this year? And they said, well, we're going to spend $615 million. And they said, well, what on? Well, it's two things. It's money for academics to study international affairs, which, you know, for Kim Richard Nossel and I is actually a very good thing. We're, we're going to make out very well from this. But also, they're setting up a cluster of 
defense innovation. And so they're going to be setting this kind of cluster up to help develop the kind of technologies of the future that will be useful to D&D. So that's not really procurement in any way. So you're right. I think that, you know, a lot of these harder decisions have been kicked down the road for at least the next two to three years for defense spending. So that's that's an, an issue. I think that the, that where uh, there is some large question mark is in the issue of defense of North America. The defense policy review uh, embraces a figure of 88 new advanced fighter aircraft, a, uh, a figure uh, that, of course, must be larger than the 65 that the conservative government of Stephen Harper embraced as the size of our next generation uh, fighter force. But it seems to me that until we make the decision about what actually that 88 figure is going to uh, to be, what precise aircraft we're going to choose, uh, then the whole question of North American air defense, it seems to me, is, uh, is rendered somewhat problematic. It will matter to Americans what kind of planes the Royal Canadian Air Force is flying in the 2020s. And the fact is that uh, the Liberals, uh, by promising not to buy F-35s back in 2015, uh, have dug themselves a major hole. Um, on the North American air defense, the government basically stated that it is committed to enhancing NORAD. It's going to work with NORAD. But one of the interesting things is that it's clear that they don't want to commit to ballistic missile defense. And that might be something that the Americans are not particularly happy about. I think they'll be happy about the increase in spending, but the fact is that they don't want to state, they don't want to change their policy of not participating in ballistic missile defense in terms of defense of North America. The reason I think that's surprising is that, you know, when this issue originally came up in around 2000, 2001, 2002, that there was a sense that Canadians didn't want it. And I think Canadians have a better sense that the world has changed. Russia has basically invested in and now has much more powerful missiles than it had. There's the new threat from North Korea. So I would have thought that this actually would have been an easier sell. So I was surprised to not see any kind of commitment to ballistic missile defense in terms of continental defense. I I wonder how that's going to be taken by Trump. Uh, I, too, was uh, surprised because there were so many murmurings that suggested that this government was getting ready to basically shift gears on uh, ballistic missile defense, and and that obviously hasn't happened. I'm actually not that worried that Mr. Trump will be unhappy with this, because I'm not entirely sure that he will even notice that uh, Canada remains outside the BMD program. However, the uh, American military, those responsible for the defense of North America, will notice this. You can't look at this as isolated to Canada because there's things going on around the world, right? And the problem is our main focus right now should be the environment. And here we are making all these tall promises about cutting down emissions and being a part of the Paris Treaty and with everything that's happening in the US of A. Because if you look at what 
what the government is doing in the states they're 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 pumping more and more money into their military budget i was watching house of cards and you know what's what they show on a tv series and what's happening in real life isn't that far off my reaction beautiful lovely they need more money i don't think this increases just because we were bullied into it by trump but i do think that maybe the awareness that it's brought to Canada's spending and the NATO allies I think their spending on defense that could have contributed because that was a bigger issue after this new president My name is Carl Belanger. I'm the president of the Douglas Caldwell Foundation. I'm Rachel Curran, former director of policy to Prime Minister Stephen Harper and currently senior associate at Harper & Associates. I'm Carl Belanger. Wait. Wait. What? <laughs> I'm Greg McCachran, senior vice president with Enveronics Communications. Thank you very much for dropping in um, and uh, giving us a bit of your time. Minister Freeland on Tuesday laid out a pretty ambitious agenda. Does this announcement from Minister Sajjan and Minister Garneau meet what she told Canadians to expect on Tuesday? Good question, Althea. So I'm going to say no, only because, um, and I know we're not talking about spending profiles or anything like that, uh, it, it is an additional investment in the military, let me say that, I think it is a good thing. It is really back-end loaded, it's a mixture of new spending and already committed spending. Uh, and there's also no details around implementation. So there's no details about how any of this is actually going to get done. You can't just dump more money into the military because they'll, they'll lapse it. They lapse significant funds every year. So there's no real plan for how the Liberals are going to purchase these new assets, how they're going to get the money spent, where's the implementation plan. So in that sense, Minister Freeland forecasted a significant new investment in the military. I think this is an investment in the military for sure, uh, but it's lacking a lot of really important details. I think politically, to, to unpack this a bit, Liberals do not traditionally have a huge base of support in regard to the military. And then in the last election, they had a number of former uh, uh, military veterans who ran for them. They got a lot of support from the military side. There's also a criticism that they're about socks and kayaks and really good at the photography. But what about policy? And, and, and um, You're basically just talking about the prime minister's the criticisms. The criticisms. Whereas flashy socks. Exactly. And so, you know, there is, I think a lot of liberals worry that there's a soft underbelly around substance. And I think what Minister Freeland did yesterday, uh, what we saw today, is very substantive. And then you, you look at things like the marijuana announcement. There are things that I think that we're looking at um, that are particularly historic. You look at the previous administration under Prime Minister Harper, you know, when they dropped the GST. That is a significant policy change. Whether you like it, you agree with it, you think it was great, it does have an effect on average Canadians' lives. And I think that's what we've seen, particularly yesterday with Minister Freeland, I thought it was really interesting because the NDP have been, in particular, very critical of the Trudeau government's approach to the Trump government. They wanted, uh, I think Mulcair called him a fascist. They wanted much more noise and mm -hmm. furor. And you can't really do that when you're the adult in the room. But I think yesterday, if I, you know, I, I'm doing the very Canadian thing where I'm judging by us by what the Americans said, but you see Jake Tapper 
talking about freelance speech on Twitter. You know, one of the heroes of CNN is, has noticed us or Politico today is talking about the speech. So I think, again, from a, a significance on the political front, substantive policy, I think it does meet those. Didn't Minister Freeland do what the New Democrats had been pushing her to do by basically calling out the president for his desire to pull out of global leadership? Uh, no, Carl is nodding his head. Well, I'm not <laughs> shaking sure she his went head. As far as that, I mean, you know, it's not like she was pronouncing his name or denouncing his policies per se. Uh, there was a well, lot of Well, if she wasn't, values. she was certainly talking around but, it. But exactly, right? And talking around it is one thing. Uh, being uh, upfront about what you mean is another thing, which is why, at the end of the day, it's about the actions you're taking. And so there was a lot of values in that speech and a lot of things that Canadians will feel good about, but there was no clearly defined political objectives. What do you mean by this? What are you going to do about it? And the one thing that was forecasted, not only by Madame Freeland yesterday, but by Donald Trump a couple of months ago, is that... There's a need for more Canadian investment in the military. And on that front, Canada is stepping up. And Mr. Trump called for it. He's getting what he's wa he wanted. So, you know, he's not the only one who's called for that. Absolutely. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Obama did it before, but nobody did it when Obama was in power. They're doing it when Trump called, called for it. And, and so despite the rhetoric, uh, the actual action is like, we're going to wag our fingers at you, but we're going to you know, do what you want in the end. And for the White House, uh, they, they must be quite happy about that, the announcement from today and the increase in investment in the military. Yeah, Carl's exactly right. So the speech was very anti-Trump in tone, which was interesting. But the, the the meat of it, the one real substance, substantive piece, was actually a positive response to Trump's demands that we spend more on the military and move towards the 2% target identified by NATO, which, of course, we had committed to in 2014. So it's a good thing that we are doing that. But it, but it was a little bit ironic, I thought, that the speech was so anti-Trump, and it, and it was. Um, but yet, it was, it, from a policy perspective, responding positively to Trump's demands. But I think we have to take a look at that, that line. And whoever wrote the speech, I give them full marks. There's some really interesting language in it. But the line about client state, mm -hmm. we cannot pursue this direction to, you know, diplomatically with, with the United States um, and, and continue to be served as a, as a client state. So I think there was kind of a, a, a nice setup for today's announcement with that line. One thing that struck me is this refusal to say where the money is coming from. Um, where it always <laughs> comes from. <laughs> from our pockets. As, as we're yes, we're borrowing it from our grandchildren. The, yeah. the defense minister is basically unwillingness to say, well, it's de deficit spending that we've kind of already suggested we're going to spend in the finance department's long-term review. And Marc Garneau, uh, the transport minister actually telling people, well, those details haven't been figured out yet. Should Canadians be concerned that the government is not telling us how they plan to pay for all of this? Okay, let me jump in on this one. Let me jump in on this one because this is actually a really good political point. Uh, I think this gives them, this announcement today, gives them some cover for their deficit spending. Even though the military spending is back-end loaded, it's certainly not coming in the mandate of this government. They can go out and say politically, hey, we're running a deficit because we're reinvesting in military capabilities and buying new assets for the military. Uh, and that is in part true, but the reality is they've got a $30 billion plus deficit without spending a 
penny of additional money on the military. So I think this, and I hate to be so cynical about it, but I do think this additional investment in the military gives them some political cover for running these massive deficits. I, I, I think you're absolutely right because, uh, and it horrifies me as a blue liberal to say that, but you look at the number of deficits that the Conservatives ran and the cover was the recession. The recession ended. We were still running deficits. Uh, you know, I, I'm a liberal that, you know, you know, wasn't got involved in politics during the Cretchen Martin era where balancing the budget was a huge thing and they were facing, you know, on the other side of the aisle, Preston Manning, who also wanted that. So that may have, you know, helped the liberals, you know, meet that that target. But I'm starting to wonder now if Canadians really care about this. And this is a government that does, does not make decisions, I think, without lots of consultation, lots of polling, and that they may feel that there is just the, the, the whether it's fatigue around this issue, whether people really don't care, they don't understand huge numbers, whatever it is, but the government may have made this, you know, they, you know, rolled the dice and said, you know, come the next election, we won't have balanced the budget. I personally have some difficulty with that. Uh, well, that's just not <laughs> well, balanced, but there's like no plan at all for balance. Oh, there is. It's just, you know, a space 1999-99-99 before we see it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be living on the moon. But, I think. but since we're talking about the budget, though, I mean, it's significant that none of this money was in the forecast published in February in Bill Morneau's budget. Mm -hmm. And so there's a bit of improvisation here, it seems to me, when your finance minister is not planning for these expenses. And there's a bit of concern that comes to mind when you look at the way the infrastructure money has also been backloaded, is not flowing. This is the case here again with the procurement where everything is backloaded. And it's concerning because, uh, you know, more that the Canadian care about the actual investment or not, I don't know, but they do care about jobs. And as in the case of infrastructure and shipbuilding, for instance, um, the jobs are not coming because the money is not flowing. And the money is not flowing because these things take a long time. In fact, the, the frigate replacement program was delayed for a third time. The bidding has been pushed back to August now. It's the third time they've done it since uh, they've issued the, uh, the, 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 the tender. And so, so this is what's concerning because... There's nothing preventing the government, if there's a problem economically, like a recession that comes that was not planned, to push this back again. And this will leave our military very much short-handed when it comes to the, the equipment they need. And, uh, and that's a real concern. And it's always been the case for any kind of military 20-year vision. At the end of the day, when there's a need to cut... Uh, the military in Canada has been on, on the front line, <laughs> not to make a bad pun. I want to talk about transparency because that was something you kind of touched on in it as well. You know, this idea that, well, trust us because we will keep our promises. We are committed to making this happen. But there are no, there are very few details. And the government says, oh, it's going to come next year. But at the moment, they're kind of saying, trust us on two fronts. Trust us that we will, we are committed to making this happen and that this will happen. And trust us that the information that we're giving you is actually transparent and clear and fully costed. Um, one, is that true? And two, should we have cause for worry? I'll, I'll, I'll talk about the timeline question. So there is no timeline. 
Uh, and look, I actually don't blame the political level for some of the, m most of the procurement problems, because they certainly happened under the Harper government too. Trying to buy anything, trying to buy any piece of military equipment is a complete nightmare, and it takes months and years of effort, and you're lucky if you end up with a product at the end of that, because yeah. uh, a lot of times you end up with like a lawsuit and, and no asset. And so, the, the, the last time they took a shortcut, they bought yeah. four submarines, <laughs> That don't float. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, know? so 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 there are real problems so in our there, there are real problems in our procurement system. So what are the guarantees that we're actually going to see these ships or see these planes? I think there are none. Uh, and and the liberals, I think, wisely have not said we're going to do this by a particular date because they know uh, that this could take a very long time if it ever happens at all. Yeah, this is hugely challenging. And and uh, it was during the Harper era I became aware of a situation that was almost like a triangle between PMO the defense minister's office, and leading generals. And it was two against one. Uh, and I won't talk about the situation and how I was informed about it, but I realized that this is something that is just, it's its so ingrained and it's very, very difficult. Um, you know, if you're the defense minister, you know, you're not, you're not entirely sure who your political masters are at all times. Um, all of a sudden there's a leak in a, you know, news organization that could only have come from within your department, but was it helped by someone at PMO trying to achieve an agenda? It is the most Byzantine and uh, just crazy. And I, I really think anyone who goes into that department really needs to have a really good understanding of, of uh, administration and what works. Yeah, it's a pretty dysfunctional department. Greg is right about that. Uh, the biggest problem we had, I should say, was trying to figure out how the Department of Defense was spending the money it was getting every year. So uh, uh, that we never actually did reach a point where we figured that out. So I am hopeful that the government, the current government, is making progress on that. Um, but I suspect there's still a lot of information gaps, uh, and those will need to be addressed at some point if they're going to spend this additional money as well. Yeah, and this is why today you end up with, uh, uh, you know, uh, 60 billions for those same 15 ships. It's not new new investment. It's the same ships you're trying to build, but the delays because of the way the procurement is working is, you know, landing us uh, in trouble. Yeah, well, you can buy a giant duck really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> that was provincial money. Oh, right? sorry. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Could the duck be like a Trojan duck? Yeah, could we, we put like a, could we put a navy inside of the duck? Uh, <laughs> uh, it's interesting to note that the opposition parties didn't raise this to lead question period, and the conservative went at it a little bit towards the end when most reporters had already left. Uh, yeah, uh, to, for the scrum, and I, did not I think watch. Rachel's highlighted some of the things that they can. It's it's good political cover, not to be yeah. too cynical. The other thing is that they're talking about, um, you know, expanding the numbers in terms of both you know the full time and reservists and giving the reservists more of an integrated role. Those are great things if you're asked questions in question period to talk about. You give the government the opportunity to talk about it. They're definitely going to do it. But then there's still no timelines on that either. But 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 again, Greg's right. Who's gonna who's gonna really delve into these details? Are Canadians really going to like sit down and look through the details of this defense announcement, or look through the details of Minister Freeland's speech and 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 really delve into that? The headlines for the government are really good. 
So Minister Freeland came out and gave a, a, you know, a substantive foreign policy speech that talked about reasserting Canada's place in the world and took a few swings at Trump. Minister Sajjan came out and talked about billions of, of new money invested in the military. So despite all the weaknesses underneath that, it may just be sort of a shell, uh, but the headlines are great. And that's really what most people see. Yeah, one timeline that's there is the pay raise that's retroactive to January. Um, anyone who's ever gotten a retroactive pay raise, you know, see a nice little bump in your paycheck. That is something great to talk about in don't expect many leaks talking against the government, I guess. <laughs> nice little <laughs> Christmas exactly. gift. It's a nice little bribe. The one other thing about, we talked about amnesia just a minute ago, um, and nobody's you know, remembering that a couple of weeks ago, Arjit Sajjan was in big, big trouble. So for him, it's kind of a political uh, redemption. He's back in a very positive light. And uh, so he's moved on. So he survived that crisis. And uh, he's coming in with uh, with this big announcement, which was preceded by Christian Freeland's announcement. So in that sense for him, it was a, it was a very good day, uh, personally and politically, because he's, he survived that crisis. And not only did he survive it, he will carry that ball going forward. And, to, and in the summer. not insignificant timing, as there's lots of rumors of prorogation and a cabinet shuffle. Right. And I think Prime Minister Harper used to like to do kind of a retool of, of cabinet in the summer, if mm-hmm. I remember correctly. Yeah. Yep. August. So um, interesting timing. All right. Thank you very much, Greg. Rachel Carl, thank you very much for joining thank us. You. Thanks. Thanks. Rachel Curran was former Prime Minister Stephen Harper's Director of Policy. Carl Belanger served as the NDP's National Director and worked as a senior staff to every party leader since Alexa McDonough. Greg McEachran was a senior staffer to several Liberal cabinet ministers. My name is Aisha Jamal. I'm a filmmaker, a film programmer, and I'm a film professor. In some ways, I think about Canada. You know, when I came to this country, we came in the early 90s as refugees, and Canada had this had this image of a peacemaker or peacekeeper around the world. And somehow, over the years of Harper, uh, everything has changed to Canada being sort of a very militaristic country, or that we actually spend a lot of money on our military, and we've changed our image from peacekeeper to actually participating actively as combatants. So for me, that's actually, this feeds into that image even further and that makes me a bit sad because I like the image of Canada as a peacekeeper instead of an active combatant around the world. Well, a new foreign and defense policy wasn't the only thing the Liberals introduced this week. Jody Wilson-Raybould tabled new changes to the criminal code, and we asked our friends over at the Hill Times to walk us through some of the more interesting parts of the bill. Hi, I'm Rachel Aiello, and I work at the Hill Times newspaper. I cover Parliament Hill, the House of Commons, committees, and legislation. This week in the House of Commons, Justice Minister Jody Wilson-Raybould introduced a new bill, and hidden within it are some interesting uh, changes that cleans out some more outdated or unconstitutional zombie laws So some of the ones that I thought were the most interesting, once this bill passes, it will no longer be illegal to challenge someone to a duel. So knock your socks off. But I will caution, uh, assault is still a thing. So if you hit someone in the process of said duel, you're on your own. Uh, It will also be okay to advertise a reward, no questions asked, for stolen property. So I guess previously before the government or the police were wanting to know if someone had stolen your property, who it was, but now you are able to just handle that process on your own. 
Uh, it's okay to possess comic books that depict crime. There had been some questions before over, I guess, things like the Avengers, comics that showed violence or things like that. It cleans up some stuff around blasphemous libel, uh, which is defined as defaming or writing something not so nice about religion or, or God. And it's also okay to fraudulently practice witchcraft. Uh, before, practicing witchcraft on its own was fine. Now it's also fine to be a fraud about it. But I will caution that fraud generally is still a thing, so just keep that in mind. Uh, and lastly, uh, it's now okay to issue trading stamps. Uh, there'd been some concern over things like aeroplane miles counting towards that kind of provision, but they're just going to clean it up so that's not a concern any longer. But I will note, uh, this is the second bill that they've done where they've tried to clean up some old things from the criminal code that had been struck down. But there's still some interesting things hanging around in there. Uh, did you know that you cannot water ski in the dark? So from an hour after sunset till sunrise, no water skiing, no jet skiing, no skidooing. That's illegal. It's also illegal for you to steal specifically from an oyster bed. As well, vendors, did you know, can say no to accepting a payment for something for a purchase of $5 or more in all nickels. Can't do that. Uh, and also, dating back to when our coins were actually made of pure silver, uh, you can't clip coins, so trimming silver off the edges, putting that together and trying to make counterfeit money uh, with the, the trimmings, I suppose, from your coins, uh, that's still illegal. So uh, there's more to come from the justice minister. She said that they're doing a full review of the criminal code and it's possible some more changes could be coming. So stay tuned and see maybe one day soon you could water ski in the dark. that's our show this week. Thank you for tuning in. We'd love to hear from you. Please message me or tweet me at Althea Raj. And you can subscribe to our show on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you like this episode, leave us a review. A big thanks this week to our show producer, Zian Lum, and our technical producer, Stephanie Warner. Our executive producer is Andre Lau. I'm Althea Raj. See you soon. <laughs>